Hello, my friends. Welcome back to the podcast. This is episode 79. My guest today is Lucy Pepiat. Lucy is the principal of Westminster Theological Center in the UK. She is a charismatic Anglican, a theologian, educator, pastor, and the author of numerous books, including Rediscovering Scripture's Vision for Women, Fresh Perspectives on Disputed Texts. So uh, if you're looking for more on that, definitely uh, check out Lucy's work. But today we discussed charismatics in a time of COVID-19 and some of the unique things that charismatics bring to this in a really positive way and some of the flaws that charismatics need to be extra specially vigilant for. These uh, it was drawn from a three-part article that, that Lucy published, which I'll link in the show notes. And uh, so, yeah, we had a really fun conversation. I really enjoyed my time with Lucy. And whether or not you are a part of the charismatic tradition or, or that expression of your faith, I think there's something useful for all of us here as we continue in this crisis. Uh, so let's go. So if I can, I'd like to read uh, just a f- about a paragraph here that you wrote uh, in this piece that that I just just really loved. Um, mm. So I'm quoting Lucy here. I'm a theologian, a theological educator, and a pastor within a tradition that has its own habits, good ones, bad ones, and good ones that can become bad ones. I'm watching some of them manifest in this crisis, both in myself and in others, and I'm thinking there are things we're missing and things we really could and should encourage one another to do better. I do love the charismatic church, but the truth is we're great at some things and terrible at others. Some of the things that we're saying and doing now are brilliant. Others are really not going to help in the long run, and still others are just wrong. They're not going to help us because they are ideas and practices that don't have a strong biblical foundation or theological pedigree, and so they won't stand the grueling test of a crisis. At best, they'll sound empty and hollow in the end. At worst, they'll disappoint and mislead people who are genuinely seeking God. I think I got about that far uh, end quote. I got about that far before I was already just like clapping and cheering and thrilled to read everything that would come next. Uh, Lucy, it was the first that I'd read from you. Uh, I've been following you on Twitter for a while and just would see things come and go. But this was the first time that I'd really dived in to engage your your thoughts and your writing and, and look at uh, at the school as well. And I was really encouraged and blessed by by what you're doing thank you thank you just glad to have some time together this is really fun (laughs) thanks it's great to be here so talk to me a little bit about uh where this came from obviously we're all in this crisis space we're all seeing different things what were maybe without throwing anybody under the bus what were some of the early things that that you're going hmm Mm. yeah i've been part of the charismatic church for 30 years now actually just over 30 years about 31 years now and uh i get so i came into charismatic things in my mid-20s and before that it had a much more sort of eclectic background and uh really came from a more sort of liberal uh christian family uh and but was captivated by the whole uh, world of the charismatic church and the work of the spirit which I had felt very powerfully in my own life and by the person of Jesus so I loved the charismatic expression of church um, but then 
became someone who pursued theology, you know, right up until a PhD and then started teaching. So you you become someone who is sort of trained, I suppose, to think critically. And so you watch things and you read things um, as someone who, in, in a sense, is always slightly assessing, <laughs> what, yes. you know, what are we doing? Why are we doing this? And I... I had felt quite early on in March, I, I think I realized that this was quite serious when people were still um, sort of umming and ahhing, especially here in the UK. I don't know what it was like in other places in the world, but I, I felt like people weren't really taking the coronavirus that seriously in some places. I thought, I felt it was going to be a serious thing for the world and for um, individuals, I felt that there was this big threat coming, and um, and so I think I was attuned to the idea that we were going to have to brace ourselves for mm-hmm. something as Christians and people who who love God and who love other people. But I I think I felt there's going to be quite a lot of suffering probably up ahead, and um, and so I was watching what was going out and uh I, I I'm always a bit troubled I suppose when I think that the church is not um doesn't look like it's being rooted in reality. So that's one thing that is really important um is that we don't abstract our faith and our teaching and what we proclaim about God from real life and real situations and real emotions. Um, and so I, I'm nervous when people, individuals, churches proclaim a, a God or teach a spirituality that divorces those two. Mm. And I think that that was one of the things that I see, you know, we do as, as charismatics maybe. We're a bit um, agnostic. Yeah, I think that we, yes, dualistic, I think, mm. um, we are. And, and it's it's a coping mechanism to some extent, um, you know, that we can't bear too much reality uh, in our lives. And um, but it, But in the long run, it doesn't help because if God, if people don't understand that God is involved in absolutely everything of the real, um, yes then they will eventually pull away. You know, they will be divorced from him, actually. It's not a good way of living out our faith. So um, so that's why I'm drawn to um, to people who, who are always pushing the charismatic church to remember that we, we must grieve properly and we need to learn to lament or express disappointment or um, acknowledge that pain or suffering can sometimes endure for years and years without relief and um, you know there are certain things that don't fit well with our narratives of healing and um, reaching a goal of quickly of you know where everything is everything unpleasant is gone and and the new has come you know um, so one of the things we do is to is to latch on to a verse and then only say, you know use that verse on its own as a little mantra 
over people, um, and which then obviously is very, that's reductionist, you know, then you're reducing experience to this one thing um, rather than acknowledging the complexities of life and faith and, and um, you know, how we relate to God. And actually the Bible does not do that. I mean, the Bible is enormously complex <laughs> and totally acknowledges the grittiness of life and the failures of life and the disappointments and the anger and the rage and the, you know, as well as the joys and, and the, the highs, the spiritual highs. And so, you know, the Bible, I don't, if we really studied the Bible, it would give us so much food for, for thought and um, material around this idea of God involved in the absolute essence of the real all the time. So, um, and so I think one of the reasons that our weaknesses emerge is because we're not actually that immersed in scripture. Mm. Yeah, that's true. I am always fascinated by what scriptural engagement looks like in different contexts and, and places. Mm. I, I will... I mean, I don't advocate this, but I've witnessed various different preachers and people take a, a, a poll or a survey when preaching, often in, in, in a guest context, okay? I've witnessed various different people be like, okay, so wave your hand at me. How many of you have read the Bible through cover to cover? And I'm like, I, I wouldn't ask this question, but I'm fascinated to look around the room and see who's putting their hands up and who's not. And you always have people who refuse to participate on principle, and that's good, but I'm I'm so intrigued. Uh, I love scripture. I didn't always love scripture. I threw it away for six or seven years in my mid-twenties because I just didn't know what to do with it. And the truth was it wasn't bringing good fruit in my life. It was bringing confusion and frustration and nothing else. So I put it aside. But actually through a word of prophecy from a woman I respected, I was drawn back into scripture because I was reminded of its importance. But enough... God had done enough in me in that time that I could suddenly, that I could see what I couldn't see before. But it, it fascinates me. We'll, we'll have people in our small group who will be like, yeah, I'm just, just really thinking that I should start reading the Bible. And there'll be people who've been believers for decades and have never read it. And I'm like, yeah. hey, great. Like, cool. No, no, no. No judging, like, great. Uh, yeah. Where should you start? Cool, let's have a conversation about that. Yeah. And then, of course, others, you know, who, who I'm like, oh, I've been reading the Bible cover to cover every year for the last 40 years. Mm. Um, so the spectrum just is always intriguing to me mm. uh, of how people engage. And then, and then, of course, intellectually, how they engage. Do they yeah. pick those individual verses and hold on to those? Do they have a broader understanding? And it definitely feels like there's some kind of, kind of irony baked into the charismatic i don't know maybe that's a general stroke that's not charismatic but i have a lot of friends who uh in more sort of mainline traditions or more liberal leaning traditions who are very happy to question things like the inerrancy of scripture which again is like in north america that's a huge deal uh whereas i keep hearing from theologians and scholars outside of north america oh yeah we're not really that fussed about inerrancy we no. just use a different tool set or a different lens to look at scripture yeah but but i but i hear from people frequently within my space oh it's inerrant and it's important that you believe it's inerrant but those same people will read scripture in a highly non-critical fashion yeah. 
And I just yeah. find that's fascinating. <laughs> yeah, no, because, you know, obviously I'm based in the UK and um, we, I, I mean, I hadn't even really come across that idea as a, as a concept. Um, I think probably until into my PhD and then, you know, came across it as, oh, that's what people think. I mean, we, you know, we certainly, it's not taught in our churches, not through the Anglican charismatic. It wouldn't come up as a thing. Right. Uh, so, which is nice. I mean, I, I'm pleased I'm a, a Christian in the UK at this time in that sense. I think <laughs> we have a nice, you know, we, we, we have a nice community of people who, who do think quite deeply and um but yeah so and it rarely comes up actually at my college it's not something that is bandied around a lot i mean the thing that the thing that does emerge is that a very high view of scripture in terms of the authority of scripture as a you know as the the text for for uh, life and church right. practice and knowing God and revelation and, and, you know, and so there's the uniqueness of scripture, the authority of scripture, the power of scripture, the idea that scripture is God's word, you know, God breathed, but, um, inerrancy is not something that we, have to battle with. <laughs> it's so <laughs> it's so fascinating because I mean I've been in conversations even in the last two months where it's literally like it's the litmus test of your orthodoxy. Oh yeah. Are, are you a Christian church? Or yeah. are you just going with the flow of yeah. modernity and you could believe whatever you want to believe? Mm-hmm. Um but anyway, that that's a rabbit trail we could spend all kinds of days down. Yeah. <laughs> so uh I love I'd love to hear uh, a couple of things you think that charismatics are doing well at or 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 are, you know have a cognitive bias in a positive direction in a crisis yeah. um cuz i cuz i do believe that we do yeah like you said we have strengths we have gifts to give in this season yeah. that i think the rest of the church does need uh what are some of those things for you well the thing that struck me first actually and i wrote it in this uh, in the post was prayer and i I think I I felt it in my own life probably uh, straight away you know as I as I said I was worried I was worried early on and I I think I I felt that really as a burden actually and I so I was praying very much uh, about the um the virus and and how we were going to cope and what governments would do and um and the impact of it and um so, so I began to pray quite early on, and and then I began seeing as the days went by, the the church sort of waking up to what was going on, and and um, and the first thing there were two things that that I saw in among my friends and networks of charismatic churches that there was enormous amount of prayer and, and call to prayer. Um, and serving the poor, and those two things just struck me very quickly. Mm. That there was a there was a, a turning to God, and then a turning to to the world, and especially the um, underprivileged and the people who were going to suffer most. And I I, I just saw that in the people that we're connected to and I, I found it very moving actually. I 
I thought, I feel like that's the right thing. <laughs> you know, that's, if we're supposed to do anything, that's really good. Those are good things to do, you know. Um, and there wasn't, among the independent churches, um, they didn't really have the conversations that I see now among that the, the, the Anglicans were having about, you know, my building or celebrating a service in my building, which I'm very sympathetic to. I understand that because we, my husband is ordained in the Anglican church and we were in a parish um, setting until 16 years ago. So I, I know about that. Um, but, you know, the house churches and the, they just made the transition to communities online really quickly and then using their buildings actually as places of outreach. Mm. So food banks and cooking meals for the vulnerable, all, all with social distancing um, guidelines, you know, and cleanliness and everything. But some of the people that we know have just been, they've been astonishing in the way that they have got out there and served their communities. And uh, I, uh, yeah, I, I thought that was wonderful. And I was really proud actually of, of the Christian church for doing those things. And, and I, I, as I looked back over time of how that, how Christians have normally responded in times of plague, um, and these kind of threats, and and historically the church has been got you know into the dirt and just taken risks in that sense of no, we've just got to keep going. We're not going to flee, and I, and I don't think that Christians should have been breaking the guidelines, but you know they were they were doing what they could to serve, um, which was great, and and I thought yeah, I, I thought that was really good. Yeah. So I I wanted to highlight that as something that I'm, I'm I'm proud of Christians that when they when we do that, you know, it's beautiful, and I think my my gut interpretation on that in the charismatic context, and and this is not to to make a slight on anybody else, but just the world that we know is we have an experience, an expectancy of God to be present, yeah. to be here, to show up, to respond, to be experienceable. Yeah. And so mm. prayer, prayer, I, I feel, I assume, I guess I presume, has a, an immediacy to it because there's the expectancy of God to just show up and do something about it. Like, yeah. please heal my sick friend. Yeah. I mean right now, God. Yeah. That's, that's specifically the time frame I'm referring to. Yeah. So whether that's how we pray for COVID or not, um, there's this expectation of God yeah. to turn up and intervene. That's exactly right. Um, and which it can be very painful uh, when he doesn't and is also very problematic um, because he doesn't always. So we, you know, so we live in an expectation which is sometimes met and often not. And um, so it actually puts us in very complicated situations in, in relation to God and to our friends and loved ones who are praying for and ourselves. Um, but so that's something that which is, I think it's a very unique experience to charismatics and Pentecostals in that sense of, you know, that we sometimes see great breakthroughs, sometimes we don't, probably often would say we don't. Um, but right. 
I mean, we've, we see sometimes miraculous cancer yeah. healings and tumors being yeah. removed, but but we also have a lot exactly. of people die. And um, so, but and I think the, the other thing that I, that struck me during this time, and I do keep seeing it, was that I I I think I saw the the love that is behind the prayer, and I I I felt as if a lot of the prayer that is now going to go on is that people will understand that that prayer is going on because they are loved. And I think that sometimes people um, fear the involvement of the church because they think the church is saying, oh, we'll pray for you because we want you to change and be better and become like us, Mm. you know. And so there's a kind of judgment behind the prayer that we fear or we don't, or, or we, or, you know, you don't want that. You don't want to be prayed for to be, you know, do you know what I mean? You, you, sure. Well, the last thing I want you, is a Christian praying for me. And, and um, <laughs> I certainly felt that in my younger years. I was like, oh, no, you know, just leave me alone. Um, but, but I, um, I, 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 I felt like I hoped that at this point in history, when when we said to our friends, we're praying for you, you know, we're praying for your families, we're praying for your brother who's in ICU, we're, you know, we're, we're praying for your children, that they would realise that we're doing that because we love them. <laughs> you know, we want them yeah. to be protected and healed and comforted and feel cared for. And I, so I, I hope that the Christian prayers are going to be received as love and I I think in many cases they are and then the third thing I saw is it as things that sort of went on and I was summed up to me in um, what we had in our in the UK was this wonderful video that was made of the of the blessing song I think you've seen that and I know many cities and other nations have done it and um, so it wasn't original to the UK, um, but that I I found very deeply moving, and I think that the um, impulse again behind that I know I know a lot of the people who participated in that, and I know the impulse behind it, <coughs> and um, that it was a genuine, utterly genuine desire to bless the nations that we live in, you know that we are part of and if we can bless if we can call god's blessing down on them we would love to do that and so you know uh, 65 churches or whatever coming together um mm-hmm. to do that and that was i i know it was genuine because i know the people involved and i thought it was beautiful and i found it really moving so and mm-hmm. and that sprung out of um a, a charismatic you know friends from different denominations which was just brilliant so yeah i have definitely seen i and obviously there's exceptions to this but i have i do think that that the spirit fundamentally moves us in an ecumenical direction yeah and and i've seen a lot of of embracing of different denominations Mm -hmm. from the charismatic dna Mm -hmm. right obviously I mean, if we talk about Pentecostals, it's more of a denomination, or as charismatic is more of a descriptor within existing denominations. Um, but yeah, I, I I do see that as a strength and as a gift. 
that pulling together obviously that that the spirit desires that we be one <laughs> yeah so that so that you know the world would know that 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 Jesus is who he said he is you know no big deal and so nice because i know that you know we all know anyone who has been involved in any charismatic world knows that sometimes what we call the work of the spirit which i'm sure the spirit is in can be deeply divisive and so yeah. you know and and what's that about that so there's something that's gone askew, you know, that yes, maybe the Spirit has done this and that, but when those things divide believers and bodies of believers, that's not a work of the Spirit. And we should say that. So, you know, so it's complicated. So when we see something like the UK blessing or see other things and we think, oh gosh, yes, this is, we can say this is the Spirit at work and it, um, and it's lovely and it's and it has this sort of flat structure as well you know it's it's anti hierarchical actually i think right. that i i think yeah. that is how what another fruit of the spirit you know mm. is that it just sort of the spirit overturns our our nice worldly structures and um, <laughs> so. exposes them for not being so nice yeah, after all not being so great <laughs> perhaps so, okay, so speaking of not being so great, obviously there are things uh, that are perhaps not unique to charismatics, but that we that we may stumble upon or trip over more more than others. And and the first one I'd love to hear you talk a little bit about, that, that one of the ones you pointed out in this article that has been huge here in our context, is prophecy. <laughs> because uh, this thing was going to be over on Easter Sunday. Oh, yeah according to many of the people in my Facebook feed. Mm. And and when we had first scheduled this interview, it was going to be the week after Easter. And I remember thinking, oh, it'll be so interesting because Lucy and I can discuss whether or not those prophecies came true. <laughs> and the fact that we've actually had more time is even better because what's a week in the scale of news? Yeah, yeah, yeah. So... What are we? What's going wrong with prophecy? Yeah, well, clearly uh, the prophetic words were wrong there. Um, uh, yes, a lot um, is wrong, I guess, in the how we've let it develop. So the fact that people think that that's okay to do that when when it had broken out, um. And to put, and to proclaim those things publicly and to share them around when they were clearly wrong, um, is something that has gone wrong in the system. Uh, something that went wrong in how, how we think the prophetic should function, what we think we should prophesy about, how we think we should deliver that. All those things have gone wrong. Um, be, and, and it would be good, really, for us to use these times as learning moments, you know, um, and to acknowledge that there is potentially a lot of damage in getting prophecy wrong uh, and not to be frightened of saying, no, that was incorrect and so you shouldn't have said it. You know, what, I mean, are the same people saying, oh, sorry, I said that, because really... I'm not hearing no. well, say No, well, I think that. they should. <laughs> I mean, I, I think agree. If we, if, if we said something 
and we've been wrong and we've misled people, it would be a good thing to say sorry for that because um, that doesn't help people. So, and that's part of, I think that would be part of a healthy practice of the pathetic. So going back to my questions, you know, saying, okay, so who prophesies? How do we prophesy? What do we prophesy about? And and, and then how is that delivered or how does that function within communities of believers? And then is there anything that is worth really putting out to a wider sphere or is it meant to be just within smaller manageable groups where we can literally pay and mm-hmm. test that prophecy? So that, that prophecy... Um, I mean, I don't know where it was weighed and tested, but it was weighed and tested in my household and we thought it was nonsense. So, mm. you know, we we were weighing and testing various things as they as we saw them. And, and in our church, I mean, we said, I said uh, before Easter Sunday, I said, you'll have heard people saying these things. Uh, I don't think those are prophetic words from God. And I said, I would love to be wrong. I would love to be wrong. Wouldn't it be amazing if this was over uh, by Easter? But on Easter Sunday, um, I was taken into hospital. I went into A&E on Easter Sunday. I was extremely ill, and um, I stayed in for 24 hours. And the week following Easter, and the week following that, I was really flattened by COVID. So um, clearly it hadn't left by Easter Sunday. <laughs> so I know it was wrong and it didn't help me. Um, so, uh, yes, yeah, so I think we should work on our practices and we have a, we actually have a protocol at WTC which we borrowed from Brad Jersak, which I think mm-hmm. is great. I think that one of his real strengths actually is is understanding how to function in the prophetic that doesn't quench the spirit or resist the spirit um, in any way, but really genuinely releases the work, the spirit's work among communities and for individuals, but also protects um, protects the vulnerable and protects the prophet, you know, the person prophesying from making catastrophic mistakes or, or even just little mistakes and so I think that's great so if, if, if people want to prophesy which I hope they do you know Paul says um, make love your aim eagerly desire spiritual gifts especially that you may prophesy well that's important that Paul said that um, and I think that he elevated prophecy as the highest gift I think it's I mean under apostleship but I think it's clear that he did that. So he knows the power of it. And it is an enormously powerful gift and wonderful gift to the church. But if it's misused, it's very damaging. And so let's use this time as an opportunity to, to learn from one another about how prophecy can be practiced lovingly, which is yes. great, you know, exhortation to the Corinthian church. I desperately want to keep talking about the next things on this list, but I feel that some listeners are going to go, tell me what your practices are for the prophetic thing. <laughs> so can you give us a I quick... Now I'd have to, I'd have to them up, but, but I'll tell you one thing. Okay, so I we have a sort of list. Um, 
but but one of the things um, that I really like and and we do try and do as well in our little church that that Brad introduced us to was in terms of delivering a prophetic word. They have this lovely way of delivering it, of saying, um, "As I was praying for you, something came to mind. May I share that with you?" Mm. Now I think that's brilliant because it lets you off the hook of having to claim that you've heard from God. Yeah. Thus that saith you've got the Lord. <laughs> yes. Well, how do you know that thus saith the Lord if that's not in the Bible? Um, so, so as I was praying for you, great. You prayed for me. Oh, my gosh, that's so nice. You were praying for me. So that can be either beforehand. That could have been back at your home in your morning quiet time or at night time as you were praying. Or it could be as you're doing the prayer ministry and you're laying hands on someone if they don't mind you laying hands on them because you ask for permission. Although, of course, now you don't because you can't. (laughs) So no laying on of hands at the moment. Um, but you, so, and, and you're praying, and as I was praying, something came to mind. So it's in prayer. So you're trusting that as you're praying, the Spirit's moving, God might be showing you some things. And then you request permission from the person, may I share that with you? Mm-hmm. At that point, they're perfectly entitled to say, actually, I'd rather you didn't. Because, and, and giving, and actually, a couple of times in my life, I've been prayed for by someone who, to be honest, I didn't really trust very much. So if they had said that, I think I might have said, oh, actually, could you just, uh, I mean, I think I might have extracted myself from the situation. Sure. Um, but if you trust someone and you look into their eyes and you think, oh, I, you know, I feel safe here. I feel safe with these people. They're asking to tell me something. So you say yes, you give permission. And and then what is given to you really is a gift from the person without this overlay of, you know, God's telling me this is for you, this is for you. And then it gives you a let out as the prayer, the minister. It means that you've relinquished control or um you, you, you know ideas of um hearing of the privileged of hearing from god i've heard this uh, and it also releases the person from having to accept something as a word from god yes. so because if i don't like it or if it doesn't land as we say or if it doesn't resonate then i'm entitled to say oh that was just lucy you know lucy thinks that when she was praying with and so it takes the weight out of it and and i think then makes it potentially less damaging yes we'll take a very quick break to thank my patreon supporters thank you guys so much each of you who support me every month whether you're giving three dollars a month or fifty dollars a month all of you make this possible and it is such a blessing i love connecting with you and communicating with you Thank you to Summers Tree, who is my newest supporter, came on last week. Uh, so if you guys would like to join the team that make this show possible and uh, even just increase your relationship with me and, and have more access to dialogue and discuss behind the scenes, 
you can go to patreon.com slash Jonathan Puddle. You can become a patron for $3 a month. You can give more if you'd like, and you'll gain access to a supporters-only podcast, uh, book studies, and various other uh, writings that I don't share with the general public. So please consider that. Thank you for listening. Thank you for sharing. Let's get back to the show. And then the other thing is to take what you have heard from the people that may or may not be from God as well, and to take that to the people to people who love you. And that's where you weigh it and test it with the people who love you. Now, I think those are healthy, good practices. Definitely. And that would be a great start. We just did that. It's mm. interesting. Yeah, I love that. That makes so much sense. I feel like in 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 the ministry school, uh, Catch Fire in Toronto has a big ministry school. There's plenty, obviously, all around the world. And I definitely think they take that approach when teaching, kind of in a in a more intimate setting. And if you don't know about prophecy, these are the ways that we would recommend you you grow in it. Great, but move that to a church context, and I feel like that 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 depth suddenly disappears, and it's mm-hmm. much more like nope, great, this is. Blam, blam, blam. Mm. Uh, at the very least, hopefully most of our churches or some are moving in the direction of of at least saying only positive things. And we're mm. kind of coming out of that kind of 80s prophet rolls into town and calls out everybody's secrets in. But what I'm finding here too, and maybe and I'd be interested to hear how this, if this crosses the ocean, that it feels, and it kind of plays into your next point about denial and faith or fear. That um, it's like, well, well, no. If if God said this to me, I have to speak it out in faith, and I yes. must believe it, or else it yes. won't come to pass, and yes. I will be responsible for ruining God's will. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So, and I think that goes well. That's also linked to what we prophesy about. So, um, the the difficulty is with prophesying the end of a pandemic uh, that had only was only beginning to break out. I suppose in our countries, there's a lot at stake if you're wrong. Yes. So, I, I think that's where you have to weigh up. So, what what am I prophesying about? If I'm if I'm wrong, what's at stake? Mm. Um, in that case, a lot, yeah. really, really a lot. Uh, because if people think that it's just a, a blip, you know, a sort of minor inconvenience, um, their behaviour would be very different from if they thought this is actually really serious. This is going to affect countless lives this is a potential killer this is you know which is what we should have been thinking um uh then so so the christians who were prophesying that uh, were taking a risk that was uh, extremely unwise slash dangerous and so that should not have been prophesied about even if they had been right. So this is what I say and what I was writing, you know, I was thinking, what if, you know, what if they were right? There was going to be this amazing reversal on Easter Sunday. Yeah, the clouds part. Everybody's, everybody feels the presence of God. Everybody's healed at once. And the whole virus disappears and the scientists in the world go, oh, my goodness, we never thought it was going to burn itself out in one day, you know, on Easter Sunday. You actually didn't need to prophesy about that. 
Because if it was going to happen, it was going to be a wonderful surprise that God suddenly did that, right? So it, it, it's the... The wisdom, but then I can't. So, but then I can't get my prophetic gift validated, Lucy. <laughs> you see, so, um, so yeah, so we leaders, pastors, theologians, thinkers, um, everyone needs to put their minds to this better, and commit to better practices, and think through. And and the reason is love. That that's the reason. It's exactly what Paul says. How do we exercise this gift lovingly? How do we love our neighbors in exercising this prophetic gifting? Because prophecy is very powerful and wonderful. And if we can hear the voice of God for others and communicate that, um, there's really nothing like it, I, I don't think, in terms of the potential for blessing. Yes. individuals and families and communities so you know mm. yeah that's a beautiful litmus and i think that's what upset me i guess when i read many of those prophecies was i'm like this doesn't feel loving this feels unwise this mm. feels risky and 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 irresponsible and i yeah. I, I i guess the next thing that triggers for me on on that is that some of those folks who I've sort of said, hey, um, I expected a greater level of discernment and wisdom from you before you shared this. The essential mm -hmm. follow-up sometimes is, well, it doesn't matter because Jesus' blood covers me anyway, and so I'm not going to get sick. Oh, yeah. No, I heard that. I heard, I didn't see a lot of that in the UK, but I did see that coming from North America. My mother in yeah. New Zealand confirmed the same, that this particular kind of nonsense seems to be restricted to my continent. Yeah, I know. I know. I know. Um, it's, it, I, I mean, I think that that's probably linked as well to the, I think it was a very fearful thing realizing what was spreading throughout the world and, and that all of us were potentially vulnerable. Um, and so I understand that when we fear something, you know, our, well, we all have different reactions to fear, don't we? But I, I think it was a reaction to fear um, to say, no, I'm going to be absolutely fine, and this is why I'm going to be fine, and so I won't be trapped. It's like when you hear of tragedies, and you, you, if you, you know, you want it to have happened to someone who didn't look like you or didn't live like you, because then somehow you think, oh, maybe that's not going to touch me. Right. So, um, it's a very natural reaction to distance yourself from potential tragedy or, um, so I think they were just projecting that kind of natural human reaction onto some faith paradigm of I'm going to be fine because Jesus' blood covers me. But mm. to my mind, it's just really a a, a lack of awareness, um, one, of history and how history plays out and that Christians are are as vulnerable as anybody and anyone of no faith or other faiths to to the disasters of the world. Um, and the other is, uh, and I find this a little bit more disturbing 
uh, is a a total lack of awareness of what our brothers and sisters suffer throughout the world who are also covered by the blood of Jesus and have totally put their faith in him probably more than us I think or I would say me you know as a western Christian living in comfort and who and, and a complete lack of awareness of the persecuted church that that suffers and dies and it, you know is tortured yeah. for their faith and that is their existence yeah. um and they do that and the blood of Jesus is with them and in them covers them but are they protected from those things no they're not so we have to have a theology of suffering that goes alongside a theology of God's deep involvement with the world and also protection at times yes, yes very much so but the but suffering and I shouldn't laugh. Like, obviously, these are real serious things. I laugh at the absurdity because, I mean, I, I heard somebody point out, essentially in North America, when we suffer, it's a sign of the re- imminent return of Christ. Mm. Yeah. But when the rest of the world suffers, well, we just, we're just not even aware that the rest of the world is suffering. So I think people are not aware. I think people are not aware, and but I think there's a responsibility to become aware of what our brothers and sisters are living through. And we have an organization. There's organizations I know all around the world who are highlighting the plight of the persecuted church. And, um, and, and, you know, that's a, a wonderful and important thing. We have, um, an organization here called Open Doors and they publish, you know, a prayer diary. My husband prays that through that every day. Um, and so it's something that, and there's other people in our church who've been really committed to doing that. So in our little fellowship, it's been something that has sort of, I don't know, it just is part of our our prayer lives and the way that we talk and our consciousness and, you know, is something that I, I think is, is important, really. Yeah. I mean, which I think segues into lament really, really well that we're not mm. used to suffering or at least we're not used to understanding suffering in the context of our faith in the west and so mm. we don't know what to do with it you know mm. to, to to the people saying i'm not going to get sick because jesus blood covers me it's more i mean you could maybe translate that as i'm not going to get sick because i can't i just in my psychological mm. framework i I mustn't, I can't get sick because I don't know how that would disassemble my mm-hmm. framework. So, I mean, as a community in our church, we're really trying to learn how to lament together. It's it's mm-hmm. new for us. We don't have in our in our stream, or let's say loosely denomination, we have no mm-hmm. tools for this. Um, mm-hmm. so we're sort of trying to lean into others and say, teach us how to lament, how to carry pain, how to carry, hold space with people. Um, where, where does that land for you? Cause I know you've written quite a bit on that too. Yes. I, I think that I'm not sure that I have experienced a lot in terms of liturgy. Um, cause I don't, I don't think I have really. And I think there's a lot of scope for the charismatic church to develop that we have a worship 
we've had a couple of worship leaders at our college, so we have some worship um, in a sort of charismatic style at our college when we meet in our residentials and in our hubs. And in our residentials, we've had people leading us in more in songs of lament and I think that that has meant a lot to a lot of people um, but we have very few to choose from obviously uh, so there needs to be more written for that and it needs to be led well I think by the people who lead whether that's the worship the, the song leader or the leader of the worship service um, so I think that would be good the I think, again, it's getting back in touch with the Bible, with our scriptures and um, the Psalms, you know, and reading the laments in scripture and also the characters who suffer greatly in the Bible. They must be people who lament, you know, they, they take their laments to God. And um, so the Bible gives us open doors for us to be real. But so for me, it would be more... Uh, I've experienced it more in real friendships with with Christians who allow one another to to suffer and to grieve mm. without pushing them through to have to get to the end of it. And I, I think that's crucial, um, not to rush somebody through to, you know, okay, now you've all got to be okay. You know, now we want the story where God's changed your Morning into dancing, you know, and turned your ashes to, to to joy, and you know, so we and and that's something that I have just felt is very important that our friendships are real enough for us to be honest about ongoing or long term difficulties, um, and and deep grief, you know, deep deep grief and disappointment that we know is part of life so why do we you know why, why do we deny that or deny people that process you know um so i think for me it, that's where it's come out most strongly mm. and um and wanting i think to have a family uh where i i really my, my mother my parents were brilliant at just allowing us to be ourselves and they, my mother was a bereavement counselor mm. actually so you know, that was a big thing of our home life was this acknowledgement of grief, disappointment, you know, losses. Um, so I was brought up with that. And um, and I, with my own family, we were evangelical Christians in a different way from my parents' family, my own, my childhood family. Uh, but I didn't want to lose that and I didn't want to lose the permission to be angry. I, I felt that evangelicals and maybe charismatics as well, whatever, don't allow anger as the you know as part of the repertoire of human life. Sure. And I, that's so unhealthy. I, I really do. And I, I mean, I know anger can be frightening, and I don't, you know, I know it can tip over into a horrible sort of fear of violence and things like. That. So I'm not advocating anything like that, but just that. You know, those sort of normal levels of anger that, that a lot of us feel um, have to be allowed and allowed in our children and allowed within our marriages and, you know, yes. in our households. And then we learn how to deal with it, actually. That would be less likely for it to turn nasty. Totally. So, so that's a bit of a thing for me as well. 
It's just those raw emotions have got to come back into the way we we relate to one another and to God. Mm, yes, so true. I'm on the same page. I was raised <laughs> not being permitted anger. My mother, you know, was raised to believe anger was sin, and yeah, you know, I grew up with that and battled years of depression and anxiety yeah. and eventually realized, yeah. oh, I'm actually just angry about yeah. all kinds of things in my life. And and my my dear mother said, um, she'll be listening to this. She's one of my most loyal listeners. She said, Aww. Jonathan, hello, um, <laughs> hello Rhonda. <laughs> um, she said, Jonathan, that's my fault. And when you figure it out, please tell me because I need help too. Um and so we've been able to go on that journey together and, and we've been journeying with our congregation and with our kids and learning about anger. And, and we were teaching uh, our kids over Zoom, the kids' church yesterday. And, you know, I know some of the kids are really struggling with disappointment, you know, that mm. that to, to nobody's fault. Their, their young understanding of God, especially within a charismatic context, is that God shows up and does things because that's one of the things yeah. we've wanted them to believe. And they're yes. wrestling and they're going, I feel disappointed. I feel angry. I feel discouraged. I don't want to pray. I don't want to talk to God because he's not doing anything. Uh, yeah. And so, you know, that's obviously complicated and nuanced. But uh, for the purposes of yesterday, our, our discussion was, have any of you planted seeds? And how long did they take before you saw anything grow? Well, eight weeks, nine weeks, ten weeks, a long time, way longer than I thought. Yeah. So let's hold on to that little truth <laughs> way longer than we thought was necessary for God to act. Yeah. Um, that's really good. Uh, I, I want everybody to go and read this, and I'm going to link it in the show notes. That is a three-part article that Lucy and I have been drawing from and, and talking about. Um, it's really brilliant. And, and nuanced and and layered and and especially when you talked about history that you just mentioned that you unpack a lot of the fact is that Christians have suffered all, like all the time all the time yeah all the time. for two thousand years uh, ongoing yeah. um, as has the world as you has know? the world the, the world suffers Christians suffer Christians suffer with the world Christians suffer because of the world. You know, and, and sometimes Christians. the world has suffered because of Christians. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. Yeah. But God is, you know, I mean, that's what we know from the cross is that God is involved in suffering. Praise God. You know, mm. that, I mean, that's the one thing, one of the most powerful things about the cross, I think, knowing that when God came into the world, he involved himself in Christ in the world's suffering. That's it. And that that's it. That is it, isn't it? Yeah. I was, I was, John Mark McMillan's one of my, my favorite recording artists. I, and I was listening to one of his songs yesterday uh, and I'd written out down these lyrics because they just rock me every time. And there's this outro to hit one of his new songs, Ancient and Brave, where he says, you drank the mortal cup to feel the blast of senseless acts. You blotted out the blood of war with blood upon your back. Mm. And I'm just like, ah, Lucy, is there, uh, I'll ask you to pray for us, but I, I'd love, to, is there anything else that you want to add or, or share just as we close? No, no, it's been lovely talking to you. And um, thank you for anyone who's listened. And uh, yeah, it's been great. Thank you. So I will pray. You're most welcome. Thank you. Dearest Lord, at this time of great uncertainty and uh, chaos, 
and sometimes we all fear. We pray that your presence would be real to us, to our loved ones, to those even people we don't know. Lord, we thank you that when your presence rests on us and fills our hearts and our minds and our homes, that you wonderfully can bring hope into despair, that you can bring peace into our confusion, that you can calm our fears. We pray that we would be people who who seek you in our suffering and who understand that you are a God who has involved yourself in every single little bit of our lives, our thoughts, our emotions, that nothing is distanced from you and that the, the incarnation, the coming of yourself in Jesus teaches us that you just long to be with each one of us and flooding us with your love. And so we pray that we would know your love, that we would know how precious we are to you, and that we would know your hands holding us in whatever we're living through right now. In Jesus' name, amen. And that was Lucy Pepiat here with me on the podcast, episode 79. I'm your host, Jonathan Puddle. Thank you once again for listening, my friends. Please share this with a friend, especially if they're a wacko charismatic like me. Uh, (laughs) So uh, make sure you go check out the show notes as well. There's links to Lucy's books and to the three-part article that we were discussing where she listed in, in much greater detail and length some of these things that charismatics are really good at and some of them that we are weak at you can go and read that there also you'll find a link to the westminster theological center that lucy is the principal of so if you're looking for spirit-filled theologically grounded training in the united kingdom uh, westminster theological center is a great place to consider hey if they're friends with brad jersek they're good enough for me if you're looking for any of my writing you can find it at jonathanpuddle.com If you're looking for me on social media, you'll find me at Jonathan Puddle. And of course, Patreon is patreon.com slash Jonathan Puddle. Grace and peace to you, my friends. Talk to you soon.